Well, hey there, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Thanksgiving weekend to you. My name is Michael Yielding, and I am the campus pastor to the Richardson campus. And speaking of the Richardson campus, I want to give them a shout out to all my folks out there. I love you, but also say hey. A couple of you that are here as well. Thank you. But also say hey to all of our other locations, Phone Creek and Woodbridge and Espanol. To all of those watching online, it's so great to have you. Uh, but also those podcasting and obviously those that are here at the Legacy Campus as we continue today in our Shadow Side series. And if you're a guest with us or you just need a quick recap, the Shadow Side series is all about navigating the good and the bad in life. And it centers around this idea that there can be hidden blessings in all that we try to avoid And there can be hidden curses in all that we seek. And today, we're definitely going to talk about something that we want to avoid. And there are some really big questions to grapple with and to wrestle with along with that. But before we do, I need to ask you a really important question. And it's a question that I wrestle with every year around this time. And I'm going to ask you, and again, it's very important, but I have to put on my Christmas hat, okay? So let me, again, it's very important. Um, But let me ask you this. Now that Thanksgiving is over, is it finally time? Is it finally okay to decorate for Christmas? Some of you guys are looking at me and you're like, are you kidding me, dude? Like, I've had my Christmas decorations up. And for the record, time out. I'm with you, okay? My wife and I are, we're early decorators. And so we've had our decorations up since like the beginning of November. I'm not asking for me. I'm asking because I'm ready to see other people's decorations, okay? Because I'm, I'm tired of being that family that's on the block that's like had their stuff up, right? I'm like ready to see it. But it's a question that people ask every year around this time. And for, for some reason this year, more so than other years, I've found that on social media, there's been like these really heated debates because there's really strong opinions about this topic. And in fact, I've been in some conversations where the topic of Christmas decor, if you can believe it, gets taken really seriously. And it's like, what what in the world, right? But wherever you are on all of that, what I need to let you know is that when the, when the Christmas spirit finally hits me and Christmas music kind of takes over as my anthem for everything, I get so super ambitious, all right? I go to like straight Clark Griswold level. And if you're like, who's... Clark Griswold. Well, just think crazy Christmas town, okay? And that's me. That's where I am. And I make all these like grand, unbelievable plans where I'm going to outdo myself last year with everything Christmas this year, okay? And as these green and red tubs come out of the attic and nearly kill me every daggum year, I get sent into this like holiday hyper overdrive. And if you want to know what the picture of that is, let me just give you a snapshot. I've got all of these lights that go out on the three trees of our front, of the, in our front yard, and they're labeled one, two, and three for the three trees. And then I have these boxes that are crammed full of all of this Christmas decor, and then I have this easy-to-reach Christmas decoration for when the time is just right, and I want to start decorating. But I have to confess something to you. Don't give me too much credit yet, because even with all those things that I said, I still somehow always end up over-committing. I always end up over-promising myself and maybe a few other people. And then, I, and then I start to feel really disappointed, right? That I didn't start earlier, that I didn't do more. Or this really cool idea that I saw on Instagram or around town didn't happen again, just like last year, which means I failed. I failed, just like last year. 
And around December the 26th or the 27th or 28th or whatever it is, when I start to put all that stuff back up, man, I start making all these promises and these vows that next year is going to be my year. Maybe you can relate to that. Or maybe you can't. Maybe you're like, I start planning in August, buddy. Maybe you've got like all these like diagrams of your house where everything goes and you've got like calendar reminders. Or maybe you hire help. I'm not sure. Or maybe you're not even familiar with the feeling of failure in this exact context. But the reality is that all of us have faced failure in some form or fashion at some point in our life, which is why that's why we're going to talk about it. It's our topic for today. We're going to cover the shadow side of failure. And truthfully, I need to confess something else to you. I don't even like saying the word failure. But when I saw my name next to the this topic on a preaching calendar from our senior pastor, Jeff Jones, I like clenched my teeth. I was like, no, not that topic. But then he was like, hey, it's going to be great. All right, go get him. And I was like, okay. But the truth is, I still don't like to think about it. I still don't like to talk about it. I don't like to experience it. It's definitely something that I try to avoid, which is what this whole series is about. It's definitely something that we would all pray to be spared from. But as we'll see, for all that we try to avoid in failure, it actually can benefit us greatly. In fact, failure can change our very lives. And that's because failure has the power to not only redefine who we are, but also realign us with God and his purposes for us. So for as much as we may not like to think about it or talk about it, let's press in. Because what we'll find is that while while failure will never be any less painful or it will never be uh, easy, it certainly also will never be without purpose. So we're going to jump in as we tackle the shadow side of failure. And as we do, I want to narrow our focus here because the truth is failure can be felt on so many different fronts, on so many different levels. But I want to talk specifically about the disappointment that we often feel related to our failures and how differently God sees and wants to use those same failures for so much more in our lives. Because how we respond to those failures and where we take those failures can either redefine us in a really healthy, helpful way, or those same failures can also derail us in a tragic way. And we're going to look at God's word to help us on that. Because truthfully, you don't have to flip very far in God's word to find these really epic examples of failure, of people that are just like you and me who crash and burn just like you and me. In fact, you might come away after looking at scripture saying, you know what, there's, a, there's, there's something to failure where it is a powerful precursor to all that God wants to do in us and through us. In fact, it can prepare us in a way that may not happen anywhere else. And so there are countless examples in God's word of that happening, but one person who's perhaps the best example of that is Simon Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus. So Simon Peter, who actually started off as Simon, was a disciple, but he was also a fisherman. He started off as a fisherman. And he had this really intimate, impactful moment with Jesus in his very own fishing boat, where Jesus invites Peter to become a fisher of men by saying the words, follow me. 
And Peter does exactly that. He drops everything in that moment, even his nets, which were his livelihood. And it's also kind of weird that he does that because he's kind of a bold, rough-around-the-edges kind of a guy. But he's also extremely authentic and he's extremely honest, which makes him really relatable to people like you and me. See, he's relatable because we often know exactly what he's thinking and exactly what he's feeling as it's happening. And one of the unique aspects of Peter's journey is that early on in his relationship with Jesus as a follower of him, Jesus gives him a new name. He goes from Simon to Simon Peter and then oftentimes just Peter which comes from the Greek word Petros, which means rock. Now, it's important to know that that's not Jesus just giving one of his disciples a nickname. And it's not like he's referring to Peter as brosive every time he sees him. No, it's Jesus tagging Peter for these really big kingdom purposes. They were these future purposes that were to come that Peter had to grow into. And in the first four Gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They record the stories and the life of Jesus. What we see in those Gospels is this incredible transformation of Peter, where he goes from this bold, brash, self-assured fisherman to this really humble servant who accomplishes these amazing, unbelievable God-sized things, all of which happen after he faces these really big disappointments and these really epic failures. In fact, we're going to look at one of those key moments in his life where he experienced not only his own failure, but Jesus' response to him. And as we do, we'll discover how we can respond to the failures in our own lives in light of how God sees those and wants to use those. And as we look at this moment with Peter, we need to know two things. Number one, this is a doozy. I mean, this is bad. Peter really messes up. But it's also the most significant moment in Peter's life as well. The second thing we need to know is that this happens towards the end of Jesus's life and what are the beginning stages of his final days. And if you know the story, you know that Jesus says that he will be betrayed. And while that happens, right after that happens, he's taken under arrest. And while he's waiting and he's in questioning, Peter is also there and he's kind of following closely behind and he's waiting to see what's going to happen to Jesus. And as he's waiting, something that Jesus predicted is going to happen begins to come true. And we're going to see that prediction in just a minute. But let's take a look at this passage, this key moment in Peter's life. And it's kind of long, so hang with me. Then they seized him and they led him away, bringing him to the high priest's house, him being Jesus. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, (coughs) excuse me, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
Now, it's important to know that before this scene unfolds, Jesus predicts that this is going to happen. I mean, he calls it. In what is the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper, he tells his disciples, Jesus tells his closest followers, that he would be betrayed by one of them with a kiss. And we see this happen in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is before this passage. So in between the dinner and the garden, Jesus also predicts and foretells that Peter is going to deny him three times and that he's going to do so before the rooster crows. And listen how strongly Peter responds to this prediction. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So here we have Peter claiming that he would not deny him. He denies that he would deny him. And yet hours later, what happens? Peter is doing exactly that. And how does he respond? He goes away and he weeps bitterly. Now, I have no idea what that type of disappointment or failure was like. And I can't even begin to fathom the anguish that Peter must have felt in that moment when he denied Jesus a third time, when he heard that rooster crow, and when he locked eyes with Jesus. And I have no idea how I would respond. But if we were to all put ourselves in Peter's shoes, I want to ask this question. If you were Peter, what would you do in that moment? And maybe more important and relevant to our topic today, I want to ask this question. What do you do with your own failure? The reason I'm asking is because if we don't take those failures, those moments of failure in our life to God, they could very well be the things that keep us from God. And while it's certainly true that those failures can be the exact things that align us to him, they also have serious potential to divide us from him. Which is why we need to think very seriously about the failure that we experience in our own life. And maybe you've got this down. Maybe when you experience failure, you take those moments and you go straight to God. Or maybe when you're reminded of disappointments, of things that happened in your past, you just go straight to God with those things. You run to him. Maybe that's you. But I have to confess to you that so often of the time, that's not me. I'm 30 years old, and for as long as I can remember that, has been a part of my life. Another part of my life that I want to show you that I'm much more excited about is this picture of my daughter. There she is. This is Sloan McLean. This is my wife and I's firstborn child. <clears throat> it's really hard to be in a bad mood when she's in a good mood. In fact, this picture was taken um, right after a doctor's visit where she had a couple of shots. But she had her favorite moose and we were all good to go. And she's great now, but the truth is that it didn't start that way, okay? She came six weeks early in the middle of the night, which sent her mom and me into a panic because we're planners and we're preppers. And while we had a lot of things planned and prepped, there were still a lot of things to be planned and prepped. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> and we spent some really long nights and days in the NICU, and we didn't know when we'd take her home. But when we did, we rejoiced and we gave thanks to God because we knew that her story could have been different. 
And so we gave thanks and we went home and we began this new chapter and we started to make these adjustments to this beautiful new little life, except that I didn't make any adjustments to this beautiful life. See, I kept doing all the same things. I kept working at the same level. I kept in being engaged at the same level with everything that I was doing before she came. And that's because I felt like I couldn't afford to do anything else, primarily for two reasons. Number one, the Richardson campus had just launched in October. She was born in February. So the Richardson campus was about three and a half months old. That's not very old, <laughs> which means there was a ton of work to do. So that was the first reason. And, and the reality is I have an amazing staff. I have an amazing core team and they had my back. They were supporting me. And so I didn't need to worry, but I did. And that's because of the other reason I felt like I couldn't afford to change. And that's much more related to my identity. See, I felt like it was my job to figure everything out with that. I was going to keep, keep my engagement up at the same level because I had to. I had to keep working. I had to keep leading. I had to keep, <clears throat> excuse me, leading from the front of the room, as they say, because that was my job. And if I wasn't doing my job, then what good was I to anybody? So I tried to hold on to this new campus world in this new dad world of a preemie NICU baby. And I was trying to hold on to both of those things and balance both of those things. And as I was in that struggle, at times I would hear that I wasn't doing as good as I thought I was doing, or I would perceive that I wasn't doing as good as I thought I was doing. And in those moments, I would just get sent into the spiral where a current moment, something in the current moment would take me screaming back to my past. And I would start connecting dots that weren't there. And I would start to form narratives about myself that weren't true. And I had these things from my past that would be brought into my future or brought into my present. And I would think they would be drawn into my future. And so I had to go to our senior leadership and say, you know what, I don't think I'm quite okay. I think there's something related to this fear of failure that's, I think there's something to that. I've been trying to outrun this thing most of my life. and I, I want to stop. I want to dig in. I want to figure out what's going on. And it should come as no surprise to any of you that our senior leadership was amazingly gracious with me. And they gave me a break. And so at the end of May into the summer, I had a mini sabbatical where I spent a lot of time being able to dig into my past. And I'm not saying I'm over that time period, but in those moments of digging in and looking at my wiring in my past and where I had been, I came away with two major takeaways. The first is that none of those things that I felt, none of that failure, none of that disappointment, none of those moments were wasted. God had a special purpose for each and every one of those. And we're going to look at that in just a minute. But the second takeaway actually can serve as a really helpful question for us in our topic. And it's this, who is using my failure the most? Meaning, is it being used by God or are my failures being used by the enemy? Because one can lead to a closer connection to him and can align us to him and can redefine us to him. The other leads to shame and can lead to disengagement. We know we face an enemy who seeks to destroy us. Jesus tells us that. So the failures that we experience when we fail ourselves and we fail others and we fail God, all of those can be used against us if we're not careful to guard against it. Which is why I am so thankful as I think about Peter's story and I reflect on my own, 
that our past failures don't define us. Let me say that again, that our past failures do not define us. And our disappointments don't need to send us onto this course to go conquer more and achieve extra. And as you think through your own life and you sift through those unmet expectations that you may have, and you think about those moments that that loom large or hang heavy over your head of failure, I want you to know something. God has a special purpose for those. And as we look at Peter's story, we begin to see what those purposes are and how they work. And the first one is this. God uses failure to redefine us based on his love, not on what we do or what we don't do. And if you're Peter, that's really good news. Because, I mean, he really messed up in this story that we just looked at. He did exactly what Jesus said he would do and that he denied. But what's amazing is that in any other context, while he should be out of the game and fired and no longer allowed to play, what's amazing is, is, is that that's not how it works in God's economy. That's not even close. In fact, his own failures put him in a really unique position to be redefined and realigned, not in light of his past, but in the promise of his future. But that hadn't happened yet. So for Peter, this is probably a really confusing time, right? Because he's walking and talking with Jesus to go from that to having Jesus hung on the cross, going into his tomb himself and seeing where Jesus was. It had to be really confusing. Even though Jesus told all of his disciples and told all of his followers that that was going to happen, it didn't make sense in that moment, and it doesn't make sense as it's happening. So in light of that, and also in light of his massive failure, he goes back to what he knows. He goes back to fishing because I'm sure for him, he felt like, okay, I tried on this whole follower of Jesus thing. I tried to be a disciple and I failed. I denied Jesus. I disappointed Jesus. And now I'm going to go back to what I was doing before Jesus. So he goes back to fishing and it's in one of his early morning fishing sessions post denial that he encounters a resurrected Jesus. And they have this once in a lifetime Game-changing conversation as they have breakfast on the beach. Let's take a look. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Love me. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this, to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. So in this conversation, we see the complete restoration of Peter, don't we? Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? And all three times Peter says, yes, which means what? We have three denials, now three opportunities, three chances, three moments to reaffirm, to reclaim his love for Jesus. 
And not only that, but Jesus has this humongous mission, this kingdom purpose for Peter. He says, take care of my sheep, which means take care of my church, take care of my people. And that also means that failure wasn't the end of the story for Peter. Jesus had this amazing purpose for Peter still, even despite what Peter had done and even despite how Peter probably felt. It wasn't the end of Peter's story. And while I don't know what you face and what's in your past, what I do know is that failure isn't the end of your story either. I don't know if you can resonate with this, but the way that I feel about failure is this. If I fail you, then I'm no longer worth anything to you. Let me say that again. If I fail you, I'm no longer worth anything to you. And even saying that twice sounds silly both times. But it feels so true. And at times, that can creep into my relationship with other people. And it can affect my work and how I see myself. And at times, it can sever my relationship with God. But God is so faithful to remind me and to woo me and to bring me back with this reality that he made the first move toward you and toward me in Jesus. He saw our sin and our shame and he chose to spare no expense to get to us. He saw his son betrayed, beaten, and murdered for us. So to God, you and me are never without worth, which means we don't have to perform for God. He knows what we look like when we're at our very worst. And he says, still, you are enough. You are still enough. And the truth is, we find that message all throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, when God deals with Adam and Eve in their sin, the first sin, all the way to this culmination of his grace and his love and his patience and his forgiveness, when he sees Jesus pay the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate price on the cross, God made the first move. But that can be hard to fathom. It can be hard to get our minds around that, even for us. And we're a come-as-you-are church. We say that we can come to God exactly as we are. We say that all the time. But it's still hard to fathom God for all of who he is out of love moving toward us for all of who we are in our sin and our shame and our disappointments and our failures. Any one of those things should have stopped him. All of them should have stopped him. But they didn't. They absolutely didn't. None of them stopped his love for us. I don't think there's a better verse to capture this than Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, if you were to ask me, I think the most important word here is the word while. I mean, yes, there is a significant act of Christ paying the sacrifice and the price of his life for us. But the timing of it is so incredibly paramount as well. It's so important. It says it all. The text says, while we are still sinners. Not 
once we got it together or once we got it all figured out. There's no transaction that's happening here. Thankfully, there's no, if you do this, then God will do that. That's not what it says, which means what? That while we're knee deep in our sin, while we're knee deep in our failure, our disappointment, Christ died for us. In fact, it's in those moments when we're knee deep in those things that we're reminded of our desperate need for him. If we didn't have those things, then he wouldn't need to do what he did. The truth is he gave his perfect life to cover our imperfect lives. And a verse that captures this is one of my favorites in all of scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, Jesus, he was without sin and he was without fault. And yet he took on our sin and he took on our faults so that we might become the righteousness of God. The word righteousness here means blameless. And how blamelessness happens is that swap where our imperfection is put on him and we get his perfection, which is really good news. Because will we face disappointment in this life? 100%. And will we face failure in this life? Absolutely. We're going to fail hundreds and hundreds of times. We're going to fail each other. We're going to fail ourselves. We're going to fail God. It's just a part of what happens. But these two verses among the many capture the posture and the heart of a loving father. It's not hostile. It's not condemning. It's loving and it's forgiving. And in a way, in the story that we just read, we get to see that on display a little bit with Peter, don't we? Because Peter messes up. He messes up bad. He does exactly what Jesus says and that he denies. Even to the point of being caught in the act. But in that moment when Jesus looks up, and sees Peter, there's something so glorious that happens in that moment, so unthinkable. It's the reality that even despite his failure and despite his disappointment and despite what he had done, Jesus still wanted a relationship with him. He still had a purpose for him. And that takes us to the next purpose, the last purpose of how God reuses that failure. God uses failure to realign us to his love and his purposes. It's true for Peter, and it's true for us. If you know Peter's story, you know that he was a key player in the start of the early New Testament church that we can read about in the book of Acts that changed everything. And that church actually gets started around the time of Pentecost, which is this Jewish festival where this really incredible moment happens, where Peter stands up to preach. And when he does, through the Holy Spirit... All of these people that are there can hear him in their own language, which is nothing short of a miracle. And because of that one moment with Peter, the Bible says that 3,000 people were added to the number of Jesus followers that day because of Peter. Those are those kingdom purposes that he was growing into. So he was instrumental in starting that church. He also wrote these really amazing letters to those that are in persecution, and you can find those in your Bible as well, First and Second Peter. But let's not forget, let's not forget this, that he gave his life 
in service to Jesus. He gave his life in sacrifice to Jesus. That's what Jesus is talking about towards the tail end of that verse that we looked at when he foretells the type of glory that he would give for his life. Jesus sacrificed, I mean, Peter sacrificed everything for Jesus. So there's no doubt that he messed up. He had this key moment, but it's also very true that he was used in unbelievable ways, in ways that were so far outside of what he probably could have planned for himself, which is exactly how God works. In God's economy, within his purposes and within his plan, those failures and those disappointments, they don't define us. He has such a bigger purpose for those things. God uses failure to redefine us based on his love, not on what we do or don't do. God uses failure to realign us to his love and his purposes. What does that mean for us? Well, this is what God wants to do with our failure, with our disappointment. This is the shadow side of failure. So it's up to us and how we respond. It's up to us and where we take those things. It's up to us to begin the process of being redefined and realigned by the very things that we may not want to tell anybody. It's up to us. God made the first move toward us, and he has such a massive plan for those things. I want to close by going back to this question. This is the question we began with. What do you do with your own failure? And in just a minute... I'm going to pray, but before I do that, I'm going to call out all the bands at all the campuses because we're actually going to have a song of response based on what we just read and what we just saw. And we're going to sing a song called Yes, I Will. And there's a line from that song that I love. It says, yes, I will lift you high in the lowest valley. And if you think about it, that's what worship is all about. It's about giving praise to God based on who he is and what he wants to do even despite what we've done or how we feel. And so if you're on the mountaintop, you can praise him. But if you're also in the valley of failures and disappointments and in moments that you might be ashamed of, we can still give him praise. And when we do, we often find that that is our deepest and truest expression of worship. It's worship based on who he is and what he wants to do. And what we've seen is he wants to do much. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of Peter. And God, we thank you for the reminder that you loved us so much that you spared no expense to get to us. So God, we thank you that your plan and your purpose can be so much bigger and so far outside of those failures and those disappointments and that shame and that, those moments that we have. God, we thank you for being gracious with us. We thank you for this song and we thank you for what it means and I pray as we respond, God, I pray that you'd give us that boldness and that courage to reach out, to sing to you based on who you are, regardless of what we face. And also, God, I pray for the boldness and courage to begin this process of taking those things to you so that you may redefine us and realign us based on who you are and what you want to do. God, we love you and we trust you and we thank you, thank you, thank you for all that you're doing. In your name we pray, amen.